James Hughes is going to come and bring us our reading from 1 John 2 before Saab comes up and preaches. Reading this morning is from, uh, from the word is, God's word is from uh, 1 John 2 uh, verses 1 to 17. Uh, and you can find it in the church Bibles on page 1225. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not, do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him but if anyone obeys his word God's love is truly made complete in him this is how we know we are in him whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did dear friends I am not writing you a new command but an old one which you have had since the beginning This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. James, thank you so much for reading for us. Uh, Before we come to uh, this passage, let's uh, just take a moment uh, to pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we do thank you so much uh, uh, for your word. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, uh, as we come to uh, this passage this morning, uh, we need your help. Uh, We pray that by your spirit, uh, you would indeed quicken our minds. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, uh, you would unstop our ears. You would open up the eyes of our hearts. I pray that by your spirit you would speak to us. You would encourage us. Uh, you would remind us afresh of your love for us. 
and stir our hearts so that we wouldn't just be listeners of your word, but we would be doers. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help to me if you're able to, uh, to follow along uh, as we go through. Uh, we're continuing this morning our series uh, in 1 John. Uh, it's a letter that uh, the Apostle John wrote uh, to a church that was being unsettled by uh, false teachers. Uh, it seems that one of the things that the false teachers uh, were saying that caused the people uh, in the church to become unsettled was they were asking them, are you a real Christian? Have you, in fact, been saved? Does your father in heaven know you? Uh, and, and those questions were so unsettling that, uh, that John chose then to respond by writing this letter of encouragement, that they might have uh, the assurance of their salvation, that they might know that they have eternal life. And so John, in fact, you know, John is very clear. He tells us why he's written uh, the, these letters, this letter uh, to these churches uh, in what is today modern-day Turkey. He tells us in uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 13, the reason, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He writes this letter so we would know that. And I wonder, for us who are here today, how many of us would say, yes, for certain, for certain, I know that I have been saved. In fact, if I was to die tonight, I am certain that I would wake up in the arms of my heavenly father who would look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come in to your master's rest. And in a culture where we are today that says all paths lead to God and that no one can say anything with certainty, that we all decide what's right and wrong for ourselves, we all make our own truths, uh, in such a culture, people might say to us, wow, how can you say that? How can you say that you know you are going to wake up in your father's arms in heaven? How can you possibly believe that? Isn't that unimaginably arrogant? So even though John wrote this letter to a church 2,000 years ago in a place almost 2,000 miles away, it's still hugely important for us today. It's helpful if you're here as a Christian this morning, and it's helpful if you're here either as a non-believer uh, or someone who's not sure where they stand with God. And this morning, as uh, we look at this, uh, this letter, this part of the letter, I want us to lift out three things. There are three tests that can crush uh, secondly, there's a righteous one uh, who saves us. And thirdly, there's an assurance that transforms us. A test, a righteous one, and there is assurance. So let's, uh, let's dig in to the first point. Tests that can crush. The churches, as I say, that John wrote to had false teachers who were unsettling uh, the believers. And one of the things that they taught was that Jesus wasn't actually God. That Jesus was just a person, just a bloke, uh, like you and me. And that actually what happened was, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained with him only through his earthly ministry. And the false teachers said that when it came to the crucifixion, just before Jesus died, just before the man died, the Holy Spirit fled, left him. But 
as we saw last week, that's just not right. That's just not true. And Colin helped us see that Jesus is the God-man. That Jesus is both fully and truly God and fully and truly human. The false teachers essentially were saying that you could never be sure that you had been saved. Only God can save and, well, Jesus, well, he was just a man. So John picks up his iPad and he starts to type. And he writes to the Christians then and to us here today now how it is that we can know with certainty that we've been saved. To know that you have eternal life. And take a look with me at what he says in verse 3 of our reading. He writes this. We know that we have come to know him. We know that we come to know him. And to help us with that, to help us see how we can be sure of our salvation, John then gives the Christians then and us now three tests, three tests in our reading. And the tests can give us the assurance that we have indeed come to know God, that we've been saved. And the challenge for me as I unfold this bit of scripture is this, that those of us with especially tender consciences, uh, those of us who have been saved, those of us who've looked at what God has done for us in and through Christ and have had our hearts melted, it's those of us who um, might be most prone to being disheartened by a wrong reading of these three tests. Okay, So as I point out to you this morning, the wrong readings of these tests in point one yeah if you have a tender conscience can i please urge you stay with me okay hold on Uh, or if your mind wanders uh, at the end of point one don't let it okay hold on there is good news that is coming okay stay with me all the way through otherwise you're going to leave this morning disheartened okay so stay with me so given that let's have a look at the tests that john gives okay are we ready okay Test one. Take a look with me at uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. There's an obedience test. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Okay, wrong readings. Some questions that uh, we might ask ourselves in response to that test. Okay, have we ever been anxious about anything have we ever been anxious about anything when jesus tells us don't be anxious about anything have you ever gossiped or misreported something to make yourself look better or someone else look worse when we're told not to lie have we ever worked on a sunday uh, or not taken god's command to rest seriously have you ever looked lustfully But a man or a woman, when Jesus says to do so, is to commit adultery in your heart. Have you ever claimed that something that wasn't yours was yours? Maybe you've taken a private call at work when the boss is paying for your time. Parked at a meter without paying. When the commandment is, do not steal. Do we find ourselves not obeying God's commands. Test two. The brotherly love test. 1 John chapter 2 verse 9. 
Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Wrong reading, some questions. Have we ever fallen out with a brother or sister in Christ? Have you ever gone into the back room after the service in the morning and thought, oh no, not him or her, I do hope they don't catch my eye, I don't want to talk to them this morning. Have we ever failed to offer comfort to a Christian brother or sister who we know is hurting? Test three. Love of the world test. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Wrong reading. Some questions about where our heart's deepest desires are. Have we ever thought more about gathering a big pension pot so that we can retire well, rather than thinking about how can we give sacrificially to the ministry of the church? Uh, Do we seek out friends in the playground or at work who can advance our careers or with whom we can hang out because they're cool? Does our internet browsing reflect worldly passions or godly desires? Is it more important for us to be seen at the gates of the private school in branded clothes and an expensive car than to hang out with the poor and the needy? How are we doing? You see, read like that, those three tests are brutalizing, aren't they? Absolutely. And if we have a tender conscience, yeah, if we have a tender conscience, we run the risk of not being encouraged, but actually being deeply troubled. Maybe even doubting that we're saved. And that is not what John is seeking to do. That they are tests. Don't mishear me. They are tests that we do need to heed, but we need to see them in the light of what God has done for us and what that means in and through Jesus Christ. And the danger that we have is that we see these tests and we think, I can crack this. I can crack this. I've got this. I can apply myself to this. I can do these things. I can work hard at these things. I can make God pleased with me. Uh, Or or the reverse of that is, if I've not done enough, if I slip, if I make a mistake, that somehow God is going to absolutely disqualify me from his presence forever. And what's the most pressing, what's most pressing into our minds, into our view is this. Have I done enough? Have I done enough to keep God pleased with me? And friends... That isn't Christianity. That's religion. That's moralism. So what's the right way to see these tests? How can these tests give us the assurance that we need as Christians? We need to see these tests not through the lens of religion. They're not to be viewed through through the lens of I've got to earn this, I've got to make this right for myself. They've got to be seen through the lens of the gospel. And that's why John has given us the righteous one. And that's our second point, the righteous one who saves us. Take a look 
1 John 2, 3. John says, we know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know him. John says, as a Christian, we can know without doubt that we have come to know God, that we have come to know eternal life. All other faith faith systems in the world say, here's what you have to do. Live up to it. And if you've done enough, God will save you. But how? How can you know if you've done enough? What happens if the good things that you've done have been done with bad motives? Do, Do they still count? All other systems of religion put you in a place where you can never know if you're acceptable to God. But John says Christianity is completely unique because you can know now. You can know now. You have that certainty. And the question that comes forth is, well, how? How? Our salvation is not based upon what we do, but based on what God has done. And so we find the answer in the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Take a look with me. John writes this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The eyes of our heart need to be opened to see what Colin called last week the God-man. We need to see that Jesus, God's only son, he took upon himself humanity. God's only son is both truly and fully God and truly and fully man. That this God-man is the exact imprint of God, we're told in Hebrews. And that God created us, each one of us, to bear his image. And God breathed all creation into existence with us as the pinnacle of his creation. And we're made to be image bearers of God, to live in close relationship with God, to be in fellowship with God. That was our calling, and that is a high and noble calling. But humanity, well, we rejected our relationship, our intimacy, our friendship, our fellowship with God. And our rebellion, friends, is no small thing. It's treason against the highest king. The crime is so enormous that we cannot make it right by ourselves. It's beyond our ability to pay. It's a rebellion that is so horrible, so devastating, so shocking, that the penalty for that crime is to be cut off from God and his goodness for all eternity. The penalty is for God to give us over to our rebellion and for all eternity to be in a place where the goodness of God is absent, where there is nothing good to be utterly and eternally cut off from God, a place that the Bible calls hell. But, but, uh, we're told that Jesus Christ, the God-man, looked down from heaven and saw us. He saw us shaking our fist at God And he set his love upon us, each one of us. The God-man came down into our darkness. He's the only one who's ever been righteous. The God-man lived the life that we should have lived, each one of us. And then he died the death that we deserve in our place. The God-man, the king 
of kings paid the price for our rebellion. And as he was being nailed to the cross, he put down his crown so that we, you and I, standing in his blood, could pick it up and put it on. He put on our sin so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. So we get to be set free. Clothed in righteousness, seen by God as perfect. As John says, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. By that sacrifice, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. If we believe, if we believe we are declared free, we move from death to life. And because Jesus had lived perfectly, death couldn't hold him. God raised Jesus from the dead. So by the resurrection, because God raised Jesus from the dead, we know that if we trust in Jesus, we too will be raised from death to live face to face with God forever. And it's not just that death is defeated. It's not just that our relationship with God has been restored. It's that we've been adopted as his children. Permanently. Eternally, if we will but believe, if we will but trust, we can know that we have eternal life. And it's good news, isn't it? It's good news because we haven't done it. We haven't achieved it. We haven't won it. It's a gift to you and to me. It's all of grace. And we're just called to turn from our ways and receive it. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God has done something for us that we could never do. So before John gives us the tests, he gives us these verses so that we might see what he has done for us. He tells us that God has done everything for our salvation. We're just called to believe. And if we believe, we can know that we have eternal life. How? How? Because our hearts will respond to what God has done. That's how we know our hearts respond. If it's true, and it is, how should we respond? How should we respond? Our response is driven by what we think has been done for us. Uh, Some of us think what's been done, having our sins paid for us, uh, is a small thing. And we've been around Christians for long enough to know that we wouldn't dare say that out loud. But perhaps our lives reflect that we think what's been done for us is a small thing. So what should the response to the gospel be? What should it be? Let's do a thought experiment. Okay? Imagine... You have a friend, a trustworthy friend, who comes to stay with you. Okay, comes to stay with you, spend a few days with you, hanging out. It's in the morning, you have to go out, you have to run a few errands, say goodbye to your friend, I'll see you a bit later, and you leave him at home. A few hours later, you come back home, and your friend says to you, while you were out, a bill came for you, I paid it. Okay, 
Your friend says, a bill came for you, I paid it. Question, how should we respond? It depends, right? It depends, yeah? Um, If your friend says, you received a letter, your cheapskate friend didn't bother to put a stamp on it, so I had to pay that for you, it's postage paid, yeah? If he says that's what he did, if that's the bill that he paid... What should your response be? Your response will be, thanks very much, I'll take you out, or maybe I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Yeah, that's entirely appropriate. But imagine it wasn't postage paid, but it was this. Okay? You get a letter from HMRC that your friend receives, and taxes, back taxes, penalties, legal bills, etc., it's 60 million pounds and your friend says don't worry I love you I love you I paid it offering him a cup of tea is a bit insulting isn't it yeah in that moment when he says I paid it you realize that your friend has just saved you. Yeah. As the color drains from your face at the thought of a 60 million pound bill, you can't believe that he's just done that for you. Your affections are now locked onto your friend. You know that you can never pay him back. You know that you can never raise 60 million pounds. So what do you do? You now long to please him and to delight him. You long to find out what really delights your friend and you want to do those things for him. Your friend's passions become your passions. Your friend's desires, they become your desires. Doing the things he asks you to do, you do them willingly, not because he's looking to exploit you. You know he isn't. He's just paid the biggest bill that you ever had. But you do those things Because of what he's already done for you. You know that your friend loves you. You know that because of what he's done. There'll be nothing that you wouldn't do for him. Your whole life would be given over to him, wouldn't it? Not because you have to. But because with every fibre of your being, right from the very bottom of your heart, seeing what he's done for you, you want to. You really just want to. Friends, the debt we owe God for our rebellion is more than all the money in the world. And Jesus, see, he looked, he looked at my sorry state and yours. And in love, he paid the price to bring us back to God. He gave everything for us, everything for you and for me. Surrendered his majesty let go of his glory, poured out his blood and broke, had his body broken. God spent everything, even the life of his own son, his only son, so that we, you and I, could be brought back to him. God held nothing back, all paid for you and for me.
Christian friends, where are you this morning? As you look at your life before you became a Christian and your life after you've been a Christian, what's your response to what God has been? What is your response to what God has done been in your life? Does it look as if it's postage paid? Or does it look like he's just paid the biggest bill you could ever imagine? What does your life look like? Does what God has done just cause you to doff your cap and say, thanks very much, I'm on my way? Or has it caused you to surrender everything to the one who loves you? See, the more we can see of what God has done for us in and through Christ on the cross, the more clearly we can see two things, right? The depth of what we've been saved from, the eternal separation from God in hell, and what we've been saved to, a living and eternal relationship with the one true God, now and all the way through death and into eternity, the more our lives will be transformed. Once we can see with the eyes of our heart what's been done, we'll look at the world through a different lens. Not that our eyes are ever going to have the crosses on them or anything, but we will look through the world with gospel lenses. The imprint of the cross will be everywhere in our lives. We'll see everything through that lens. And that's going to change us, isn't it? That will change us. And it's a change that gives us the assurance that we have been. It's that change. It's that very change that we can see that gives us the assurance that we have been saved. That we have eternal life. It's the assurance that transforms us. Rather like the illustration of the friend paying off the huge bill for you. When we allow our hearts to see the enormity of what God's done for us, it'll change us. It will transform us. And to the degree that you can see what's done, you'll long to know more of the one who's done this for you. You'll long to hear him speak to you. You'll make his priorities your priorities. And you can do that by being in his word every day, by having a vibrant prayer life, by gathering together with his people week by week, by meeting together in small groups in the middle of the week with other believers. Doing those things will help you see more and more of the one who's rescued you, the righteous one. And by that, you'll see things in your own life that don't sit well, the things that don't delight the one that has done all that for you. And you will seek to put those things to death. And to the degree that you can see what's been done for you, you'll long for your life to be more and more like your saviors, like Jesus. Not because those things save you. You already know that you've been saved. But because it's the overflow of love in your heart for the one who saved you. You're no longer driven by fear and anxiety. Does God love me? Am I acceptable to the God? Am I acceptable to God? The cross screams that from the skies. You are loved. You are saved. You are accepted. But the magnitude of that love calls us on. It calls us onto an adventure, doesn't it? 
It places the noblest calling into our hearts to live for the one true king. To speak to the king, to know the king, to be in fellowship with the king. But this process doesn't happen overnight. It's not overnight. It's not a a thing that we'll see like that in our lives for most of us. Because for years we've been immersed in a world uh, and its way of doing things. But as we see the gospel, it's like a seed that's implanted deep in our hearts. And it will place new desires, new longings, new thirsts for the king, new passions for the king. So the three tests, they stop being tests that crush. The tests are now way markers that point to the fact that we are living a life for the king. We now obey God. Because you long to be more and more and more like his son, the one who died for us. We now love our brothers and sisters in Christ because we know how deeply God loves us, each one of us. Therefore, he loves our brothers and sisters just the same. And our desires, our desires will be more and more for God, not the things of the world, the things that are fading away. We'll desire to have more and more of the one who gave everything to bring us home. So as we look at our lives, these tests give us the assurance that we've been saved. We can know that we have eternal life. We'll have that certainty because we are growing in our desire to live for the king. And over time, our lives will be decorated and adorned by way markers revealing, revealing to us our love for the king. The focus of our lives will be Jesus. And John encourages us and the church is there by saying that they are growing. And he tells them in chapter two, verse eight, that the commandment to love is indeed in them. In fact, he tells them that the true light is shining, that their desires to be obedient, to love the brothers and sisters in Christ and not chasing after the world gives them the assurance that they do know that they have eternal life. So Christian Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? But John also recognizes, doesn't he, that we will stumble along the way. It's not an escalator that just steadily, permanently goes upwards. And for that, we're told that God will forgive us if we confess our sins. And Colin showed us that last week in chapter 1, verse 9. That for those of us who trust in, trust in God and what he has done for us in Christ, we know that God has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. We see that in chapter 2, verse 2, because Christ is our atoning sacrifice. But our every step won't be perfect as we live for God. But our direction of travel will be clear. That will be clear. Over time, through our obedience to Christ, through our love for our fellow Christians and our desires for godliness, our lives will look more and more like Jesus's. And in that, we have assurance that we know that we know eternal life. So to close, let me speak to the Christians here. Friends, As you look back over your life, over the last year, five years, ten years, maybe longer, 
Can you see those way markers of change in your life? Uh, over time, have you, have you grown in patience? Would people who know you, would they say that you are less cranky than you used to be? Uh, have you grown in peace? Would people who know you say, yes, you're less anxious, you're less worried about things than you used to be? Are, are you more tender with people than you used to be a year ago? Less exacting, less sharp in your speech? Is your desire to kill the sin in your life growing? And let me encourage you this week to do a little inventory of your life as a Christian. Where can you see real growth in those three tests of obedience, of brotherly love, and of godliness? And, and where are you struggling? Let the areas where you see that growth give you the confidence that you know that you know eternal life. And in those areas where you see little or no growth, do not give up. Do not give up. We are being perfected, ongoing, being perfected. We will be perfect on that last day when we meet the Lord Jesus, but for now, we are being perfected. And remember, Christians, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in each one of us. Meditate on what God has done for you in and through Christ. And pray that God will give you the strength and the joy to have a heartfelt desire to become more and more like Christ. Share your troubles with close Christian friends who can pray for you, who can encourage you, and they can point you to promises in Scripture to remember what God has said. Now, there's a question for us to chat about after the service. That's this. It's where in your life have you seen God at work making you more like Jesus? I'll come up on the on the screen at the end of the service. Where in your life have you seen God at work making you more like Jesus? Encourage one another with where you've seen that. And continue to reflect on that as you journey through the week. But for now, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for the assurance uh, that we have uh, thank you that uh, in and through your work, uh, through Christ on the cross, uh, his life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension, the things that you have done, uh, that we can know our salvation. Encourage us this week, I pray. Uh, help us to be reminded, prompt us by your spirit, of those places where we have been growing, where we can know that we know eternal life. And Father, I pray that you would also plant in each of our hearts a deep desire uh, to live for you. And might the cross shine brightly in our hearts. Might we see all things through that. Shape us, mould us, draw us on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Uh, that does bring us uh, to the end of our service this morning. It's great that you were able to be with us, uh, either here in the building or online. Uh, my hope and prayer is that God has spoken to you this morning. Uh, please, please, please do pray with the person that you came with or the person who's sitting uh, around uh, with you about whatever God has spoken uh, to you about this morning to encourage uh, one another. And there is the question. It would be great if uh, you can kick that around with, uh, with those uh, around you. Where in your life have you seen God at work making you more like Jesus? Uh, remember those moments. Encourage one another's hearts uh, with that. Uh, please uh, do join us for tea and coffee in the back room afterwards. Uh, Neil, open the service with some words from Hebrews 4, and uh, let's go back uh, to those words. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Amen.